Where are we going right now, Eric? We're going to our fourth floor storage room. Asif Manvi here, and I know exactly where I am at the Smithsonian. Actually, that's a lie. I'm lost at the Smithsonian. Again. This is not your first time there. No, you're right. Today, I'm lost in a sports collection storage area at the National Museum of American History. There are roughly 6,000 pieces of sports memorabilia here. But for today's episode, I have to pick just one to learn about. It's not an easy choice. You're seeing a baseball signed by the 1931 uh, Yankees, including Babe Ruth. I'm completely overwhelmed by my options here. There's Tony Hawk's skateboard, Chris Everett's tennis racket, a Yankee Stadium ticket booth from 1923. There is even a handball here that was used by Abraham Lincoln. It's impossible to choose. And, uh, look at that. Oh, wow. Pele. Number 10, Jersey, New York Cosmos. Pele is one of the most famous athletes ever. He was the GOAT before the war GOATs. The most celebrated player in the history of the game. Over the course of a 21-year career as a professional soccer player, Pele did more for the sport's global appeal than anyone in history. He did so much, in fact, that the International Olympic Committee named Pele the Athlete of the Century. Pele spent most of his career in Brazil, where he was born. But towards the end of his career, he came to America to popularize soccer in the U.S. Today he joins the New York Cosmos and the North American Soccer League. Pele wore an unassuming white mesh jersey with a number 10 on it. And now, that jersey has made its way to the Smithsonian. American history is not just, and culture doesn't just come from America out. That right. just kind of shows, like, we also are uh, indebted to other cultures for building our own. Right. Well, you know, I've actually page. met Pele. Oh, okay. Oh, wow. And, yeah, and he oh. actually he actually came to The Daily Show once. And really? I got to, like, meet him. That was a big thrill. tonight. A legendary footballer, won three World Cups during his professional career, is the all-time leading goal scorer in soccer. John Stewart and I are both huge soccer fans. I grew up in England, where watching soccer is practically a citizenship requirement. And though it's hard to believe, John played in college. So, heck, sometimes we even call it football. You grow up, very little money. You use for a soccer ball a sock stuffed with newspaper or a... Fruit, uh, something. Fruit. <laughs> grapefruit. 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 <laughs> I mean, that's how they, they play on, on the dirt. But Pele, he's on a whole other level. He doesn't even need a ball to play the game. Just and the shorts there, shorts and those and, are his socks. socks. Yeah. Wow. It really is uh, a testament when your socks are in the Smithsonian. Your dirty socks. Your dirty socks mm. are in the Smithsonian. Is it Pele or Pele? I've heard Pele, but I grew up Pele, so I probably will fluctuate through the course of this interview. Eric Jentz is an expert on sports. More importantly, he's a curator at the American History Museum, which means he's in charge of making sure I don't walk out of here wearing Pele's jersey. There he is. Wearing for the last time the number 10 that he has made world famous, Edson Morantes do Nascimento of Brazil. Pele is such a legend, even his name has an origin story. He was born Edson Arantes do Nascimento. 
Pele was a nickname other boys started calling him when he was just a kid. He didn't really like the name. They said he said it was a kid before he. He didn't like his real name. No, he didn't like the name Pele or oh. Pele. Or okay. my understanding is that he didn't really care for it, but it was a nickname that was attributed to him as a, as as a kid. And did it mean something? Because he grew up in Brazil. Yeah, they said he's they they claim to not know what it means. Huh, interesting. Even if it didn't mean anything then, Pele certainly means something now. Soccer legend, and he grew up playing soccer, football, football <laughs> on the streets of, where, Sao Paulo? Yeah, he was um, incredibly impoverished and uh, became a professional as a, you know, in his early teens. He first wore shoes in a game at age 12, but at 15, he was a major league player. At 17, star of the World Cup and a major world figure. Over the next 15 years, Pelé scored more than 1,000 goals. One reporter wrote, the best and most experienced defenders on earth could do nothing to stop him short of homicide. No wonder that for so many people, the name Pele is synonymous with soccer itself. There's not that many people so associated with a sport than Pele is with soccer. I think Babe Ruth would be an example in baseball where people who don't know baseball uh, know that Babe Ruth is a baseball player. But he's that level of fame. The return of Pele has attracted worldwide interest. And given professional soccer in the U.S., a king-size shot in the yard. When Pele came to play for the New York Cosmos in 1975, it was a big deal. Not just because Pele was a soccer star, but because he came out of retirement to bring soccer to America. It was only a two-year stint, but it made a huge impact. The return of Pele, today on CBS. I look at it like when you have people like when Brezhnikov or, you know, come to America, you know, like these kind of international stars, people not interested in sports still want to see the best or the most interesting thing. So Pelé was able to do that, just his presence in joining the team. And I think he did it intentionally because he knew America was this great market that was kind of untapped for the sport that he loved. A few years before Pele's arrival, when the North American Soccer League began, soccer was largely seen as a sport for foreigners. But just a few years after Pele's brief chapter with the Cosmos, there were over three million organized players in the U.S. I went to my first practice and I fell in love. It was just, I call it love at first kick. Among the young players who felt that spark when Pele played in the U.S. was Brandy Chastain. Chastain is best known for her penalty kick at the 1999 World Cup in front of 90,000 fans at the Rose Bowl and with 40 million Americans watching at home. And no keeper in the world is going to save that kick. Chastain ripped off her jersey and dropped to her knees in a black sports bra, an iconic image that was on the cover of Sports Illustrated, Newsweek, and Time magazine because of its importance on so many levels. For women's sports and for soccer in the U.S., that 1999 team put women's soccer on the map. It really is a moment of insanity because it was relief, it was satisfaction, it was joy, it was passion, it was love, it was pride. Then if you could multiply it exponentially by probably like a million, then we might get close to the feeling that I had at that moment. But it all started when Chastain went to a soccer camp as a nine-year-old where the prize for the best player was the chance to wear Pele's number 10 Cosmos jersey for an afternoon. Man, if that didn't ignite a fire in me. And so I have to 
set the stage even more in saying that it was like 300 boys at an overnight camp and like five girls. So the competition was stiff, (laughs) but I was determined to wear that jersey, and sure enough, I did. And it was like a magic cape. It was like, you know, the invisibility cloak, so to speak. Uh, You could put it on, and you felt like you could do anything. It was, you know, obviously way too long for me at nine, and I wore it more like a dress than a shirt, but... It was spectacular. It it made me so happy. I mean, I even now, talking about it, you know, I have a big smile on my face, and it's one of those moments that you hope in your lifetime you can recreate the feeling you you had when you put that jersey on. Now, first of all, let me ask you this: Is it Pele or is it Pele? Well, I always I. I would just call him the king. That's David Hershey, the sports writer who co-wrote Pele's New World, Pele's autobiography about his time in the U.S. If there's anybody who knows Pele well enough, both personally and professionally, to give the king his due, it's him. It's Pele. Pele. Pele, right? Yeah. It's Which not, is... as my first sports editor referred to him as Peely. That is yeah, not the way you, you say it. That guy should have been fired right on the spot. I had this debate with the curator at the Smithsonian, Pele. He wanted to call him Pele. Well, Pele makes perfect sense because uh, he did nothing, basically, that didn't have a check attached to it. So Pele, maybe that's what they're talking about. (laughs) Maybe. His opportunism was even spoofed on The Simpsons. Hey, look, it's Pele! king of the soccer field, to be king of your kitchen. Use Crestfield wax paper. David Hershey's interest in soccer wasn't strictly professional. He used to play in college. When he was 22, he was working as a reporter for the New York Daily News, whose editor told him, don't waste your time on soccer. It's a game for commie pansies. Luckily, David didn't listen. I volunteered to cover soccer because no one else wanted anything to do with it. Mm -hmm. So for that first year, I think it was 73, 74, I would schlep out to uh, Long Island and and write four paragraphs about the cosmos uh, that were usually cut in half and placed in the hair replacement ads in the back of the paper. But that all changed on July 10th, 1975, when Pelé arrived, and all of a sudden, my stories were leading the sports section. So basically, I owe my career to to the man. There he is, the man they've been waiting for here in New York City. A thunderous ovation for soccer's greatest player, Pelé. I'm still not sure about how much money he got. I was told by my source that it was... 2.8 2.8 million for two years, which seems, you know, chump change by today's standards, but was then the most money that any soccer player made. It's important to point out that while Pele loved the idea of coming to the States to spread the gospel of soccer to the heathens, he also loved the string of zeros on his paycheck because Mm -hmm. he was frankly broke 
from ha- relying on his entourage to handle his finances. When Pele got to America, soccer wasn't really part of American sports. Now, being on a soccer team in elementary school is a rite of passage. Back then, it was practically unheard of. Baseball was American, football was American, basketball was American, but soccer? That was for commie pansies! Until Pele showed up. When that happened, David Hershey suddenly went from covering a bottom-tier sport to following around the biggest sports celebrity in the world. In Brazil, where he was before he retired, all he could win was a championship because he was already a national treasure. Right. But here, he could actually win a country. He could he could conquer the last outpost of indifference toward the beautiful game while at the same time making himself whole financially. Right. You'll notice Pelé takes a pretty good shot. Look as he moves into the penalty area now, and the ball comes across. Pre-Pelé. What, half full stadiums? No, we're talking about, you know, ramshackle uh, stadium field was strewn with rock and glass and a mixture of, uh, you know, former semi-pro players and college graduates to make it a decent team. But there was nothing cool about the sport back then whatsoever. And here it comes again. Ball coming across from the right. When we return, soccer takes over the United States with Pele leading the charge at the request of Henry Kissinger. Wait, what? That can't be. Wait, really? Okay, I'll, I'll check my notes and get back to you on that. What was the impression of Pele before he came? Did people, did Americans know who he was and what he what he meant to the game? Well, I, th- you know, you had to be a diehard to really understand his importance as a soccer player. But I think a lot of people knew him as a global icon. You know, here's this guy who, I think it was 1967 choppered into Nigeria and they stopped the civil war for 48 hours Mm -hmm. while he was there. And there was all sorts of legends about that his popularity eclipsed the the Pope and maybe only Ali was in his category worldwide as a sportsman. The youngster emerged from the obscurity of the back streets of Sao Paulo to world fame almost overnight. His famous number 10 shirt became a symbol for footballing skill. I don't know if you're aware of this, but Pelé came by that number accidentally mm. uh, in 1958 when he, he when he made his World Cup debut as a 17-year-old. The Brazilian team had forgotten to allocate numbers uh, <laughs> on the shirts. Right. So uh, FIFA stepped in and sort of randomly gave the number 10 shirt to Pelé, which was usually awarded to the team's most creative player and playmaker. Mm. But, you know, it was totally by accident that he got that number. And, of course, he made it into the most uh, famous shirt in, in the sports history. 
Regardless of how he got his number, Pele certainly made it his own, becoming the most creative player and playmaker not only on his team, but in soccer at large. It's Pele! Pele now! Yes, there it is! That is the touch of a master! David once wrote that many of Pele's soccer goals were masterpieces worthy of the Louvre. Pele himself once said, I was born to play football just like Beethoven was born to write music and Michelangelo was born to paint. What was so special about you know, the way he played? Well, I think three things. Balance. Uh, you know, you couldn't, you couldn't shoulder barge him or, or tackle him off the ball. What's Pelé now? What a beautiful goal from Pelé. El Rey Pelé. He was a squat man with a very sturdy physical plant. So he was five foot six. That allowed him to wriggle out of tight spaces. Mm. Uh, he then had the, you know, a golden touch. He, he would stop the ball dead uh, upon arrival. That gave him an explosive first step to get by defenders. And Pele flying through the air. And he's walking into the net. And then... There's his vision. He could see things that no one else on the field could. He, he, he could see a space that was about to open up in a nanosecond, you know, whereas others just saw two defenders in front of them. I think it was that combination of balance, vision, physical strength, and imagination that set him apart. The game is over. Bella is being mobbed. Now, who was responsible for convincing him to come to the States? In the end, I think Henry Kissinger. Henry Kissinger? That's right. Former Secretary of State Henry Kissinger, who served under Richard Nixon and Gerald Ford, might be directly responsible for Pele and soccer coming to the U.S. I think Henry Kissinger, it's a long story, but... The general manager uh, of the Cosmos was a um, was an expat, former soccer writer in England, who is that Clive Toy? Who, Clive Toy, yeah, right, right. Who realized that you know, no matter how much effort and and gimmicks they put into promoting the Cosmos, that they would continue to play in near obscurity unless they could get. A superstar. Ah, Pelé. Somersaulting through the air to score spectacularly with a bicycle kick. There was no greater superstar in all of soccer than Pelé. If the Cosmos could get him, he'd put them on the map. But the problem was Pelé had been anointed a national unexportable treasure by Brazil. So he had to resort to using the leverage of our government in dealing with the Brazilian, their Brazilian counterparts. And that's where Kissinger came in. He was a former mediocre goalkeeper in Germany who loved the sport. And he was able to convince the Brazilian minister that this would be a win-win for everybody. <laughs> and I'll forever be grateful to him for that. Now, historians might not believe I'm saying this, but Kissinger was right. Pele's first game with the Cosmos was televised in 22 countries, which was a major change of pace for the Cosmos. 
And what was the spectacle of that first game? Like, what was the feeling in the in the uh, in the stadium? Well, the irony is they uh, they had to play it at this uh, at Randall's Island, as I said, the downtrodden pile of rocks left over from the Paleolithic era in Manhattan, rather than at Yankee Stadium, which had a capacity of seventy seven thousand. Randall's Island could squeeze in maybe twenty. What was, to me, what was noticeable was that the press box, which, as I said, usually had no more than six or seven journalists, had 300 reporters from around the world wow. to witness this watershed moment. And it was the, the stadium was in such sad-ass shape that I arrived an hour before the game to see Clive Toy, the general manager, on his hands and knees, painting dirt spots on the field so they would look good on television. Wow. Uh, it was like displaying the Michelangelo in some ratty All basement. coming across from the right, leaps high into the air, the perfect header, and Pelé has scored his first goal in the North American soccer, and the crowd are going wild. So, you know, it was a feverish, ephemeral moment in time that could never be sustained. But for those couple of years, to say, as I did to the, uh, to the gatekeeper at Studio 54, I'm with the cosmos. Mm. Those four words were like saying, I'm with the stones right. in another era. Th that leads me to, the, to uh, a funny story, probably the most surreal moment in the 30 years I've been, I've been covering Pelé took place at the um, at the famed nightclub Studio 54 back in the late 70s uh, when it was, uh, you know, the temple of disco and drug-fueled parties. And it was full of one-name people. You know, Andy <laughs> Warhol was known right. as Andy. Liza Minnelli was Liza. Bianca Jagger was Bianca. He fit in seamlessly mm -hmm. there. And I'll never forget seeing him stretched out on some leather banquet like a Roman emperor with two blondes on each side of him feeding him Dom Perignon and grapes. And he looked up at me and winked and he said, not for the book, my friend, not for the book. <laughs> at the time, we were working on a memoir, one of his six autobiographies. All right. Mine was simply about his time in, this, in the States. Now comes the time to call it a day. Pele was as big of a sports star as you could get in America, a feat which was all the more impressive because his American soccer career only lasted two years. Two years later, he retires. Is that right? He retires, yes, two years in 1977, before 77,000 at Giant Stadium, you know, in a game where he played the first half for uh, the Cosmos and the second half for his old club team, Santos. Pelé has scored in his last half for the Cosmos, and this is what today is all about. Look at them, all over him. He was able to score a goal for each team. So everybody was happy. And then he um, was carried aloft on the shoulders of his uh, Cosmos teammates around, you know, for a victory lap. And now, the final farewell. With an American flag in one hand, a Brazilian flag in the other. And the music... In the teeming rain, and 
I just remember everybody in the stadium staying while it pissed down. Mm -hmm. And he finally took the microphone and said, this is for the children. I'm hoping my time here will have planted the seeds for the children who will follow. And then he closed with love, love, love. Say with me three times. Love. Love. And love. Thank you very much. Yes, love is what this day is about. The love of this man for a game and his love for the children of the world who play it. Two years, he's playing, and then after Pelé retires, American soccer never looks back. Like, it's just the biggest sport in America. No, 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 no. <laughs> no? Uh, what? It, the, Wait, It was a house of cards that crumbled. The league that he propped up for those two years, yeah. the, the rest of the teams couldn't compete with the millions of dollars, and yet they tried, and they didn't get the traction that the Cosmos did. Then it was, I think, 10 years later before MLS came into being. Um, So, no, there was that period where it was just an obscure sport that had its once-in-a-lifetime moment. But now, 40 years later, the, the sport is, I think, entrenched in the DNA of American kids. And that's who you're seeing come out to MLS games and like Atlanta United, where there's 75,000 people every week. So the, the seeds that he planted did grow. At this point, the MLS is almost a quarter century old. An entire generation of American kids have grown up playing and watching soccer, and American soccer teams now compete on the world stage where they inspire a love for the game in a new generation. Rapino will strike! Rapino scores to NUS! 25 million Americans say they play soccer at some level. And that doesn't count people like me who want to play but can't because I'm not very good. 21st century American soccer has firmly established itself as a mainstream sport. And it's all because of one player, Pele. And there's no question that his presence... You know, when when people say that the United States is no longer a sleepy backwater of soccer, it was all due to to his presence in 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 this country for those two amazing years. Yeah, and um, you know that's quite a gift. <laughs> David Hershey was a soccer columnist for ESPN and is now a writer-at-large for the magazine 8 for 8. Next time on Lost of the Smithsonian. But there's something in particular that I wanted to pull out. Um, so, suits worn by the Bee Gees. Oh, my God. Matching. That's huge for me. Matching suits from their 1978 tour right after Are you Saturday kidding Night me? Fever with their shoes. What? Dude, I am the biggest Bee Gees fan <laughs> 
on this planet. Silver, shimmering, shiny suits that represent one of the best-selling soundtracks of all time. Lost at the Smithsonian is produced by Mary Beth Kirshner. Our executive producer and editor is Ellen Weiss. Technical support from Robin Wise. Fact-checking from Danielle Roth and scripting by Alex Berg. Mixing and sound design by Casey Holford and John Delore. Original theme music by Casey Holford. Our supervising producer is Jordan Bell, and our executive producer is Chris Bannon. Huge thanks to the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History, Eric Jentz, Ryan Lintelman, John Troutman, and Laura Duff, for all their help in making this show. Lost at the Smithsonian is a production of the Scripps Washington Bureau and Stitcher. I'm your host, Asif Manvi. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Asif and Facebook at Asif Manvi. If you like the show, don't forget to rate and review it on the Apple Podcast app. It really helps other people find the show. Thank you so much for listening.